Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be back with you today. Today's story, Urban Legends number 10. And yes, we've done nine of them in the past five years, and I highly recommend you search 1001 Heroes for Urban Legends if you'd like to catch up on them. I love them all, but my favorite is Shell Urban Legends number 2, titled The Legend of Bunny Man which, like all of our urban legends, is really a collection of urban legend stories. Be sure to catch The English Professor, which comes up as number 8 in Urban Legends 2. That's one of the funniest stories we have ever covered. I have a few more urban legends collections coming for you in the coming weeks and months, starting with today's episode, Urban Legends number 10, Haunted Dolls and Lonely Dummies. It might have been our Salem stories and interviews that got me thinking about this, but what really launched it was an experience I had up in Pennsylvania a few years ago. Before we get into that story, I need to tell you that the subject of haunted dolls is definitely not for children or for persons of all ages who collect dolls which do not have a supposed connection to the paranormal. The discussion of dolls which have somehow taken on the souls of the dead is a spine-chilling topic which connects with paranormal events and dates back to early times. Today's urban legend collection begins with a personal recollection, then covers the stories of haunted dolls, followed by the story of ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his wisecracking dummy, Charlie McCarthy. The following personal recollection is true. Some years ago, my wife was notified that her uncle, whom we will call Uncle Lou, had died and that she had been named executor of his estate. We were tasked with traveling up to northeastern Pennsylvania to meet with his attorney, the funeral home director, a real estate agent, and a representative of his bank. Uncle Lou lived alone in a small house on a rural road outside of Tawanda, PA, and had no direct descendants. He had been a heavy smoker and for many years had been depending upon oxygen and meds to stay alive. He had been found dead in his home when the mailman reported that he wasn't picking up his mail and someone was sent to investigate. Our mission in going was to decide how to properly divest his belongings and to pick up his ashes. At his attorney's office, which was our first stop, we were handed a key to the front door of Uncle Lou's home and given directions as to how to get there. The next stop was the funeral home, which was a 17-room Victorian in town where we met the funeral director, who gave us Uncle Lou's ashes, which we packed in the car. Uncle Lou's biggest passion in life was jazz music. He had gone to a music college in upstate New York, and, as family legend went, it was there that he had met a girl that he had fallen for, only to lose her in a tragic plane crash, and he spent the remainder of his life as a bachelor, preferring to remain alone in the endless mountains of Pennsylvania rather than attend family functions. We would visit him now and again, but when we had kids, those visits dwindled, and we were living a good distance away. But now, here we were in the middle of the winter, holding the key to his house and hoping to quickly take care of his estate, meaning to find a buyer for his small house, which would make a good hunting cabin, and sell his old car, his lawn tractor, and what furniture he had. It was going to be a busy two or three days. We parked on the snow-covered driveway and tried the front door. The key moved in the lock, but the door wouldn't budge. I tried it with my shoulder, and it still wouldn't budge. So we figured that somehow the door must have been bolted shut from the inside, and there must be another way in. We were both very aware of how quiet and strange all this was, knowing that Uncle Lou had died right here in this house within the past week or so, and we had the feeling that we weren't alone. Probably a normal feeling, considering the circumstances. We walked around the house. There was no other access on the lower floor that could be had without breaking glass, which we didn't want to do. 
I saw a likely-looking second-floor window on the rear of the house, which looked big enough to climb through, and there was also an extension ladder laying out back. I positioned the ladder just below the window and climbed up. Using my case knife, I was able to jimmy the window open and look directly in to see what obstacles I would be encountering when I climbed through. It was about a four-foot drop to the wooden hallway floor. I could see that although it required a head-first entry, it was still doable, so I started to climb through. There was one other second-floor hallway window, and down the hallways, the sunlight from it was peeping through just enough to dimly show some scattered items lined up against the wall down the hall to my left. Frankly, I wasn't too keen about entering the house this way, and when Uncle Lou had died here, but when it's family, you do what you have to do. When I had half of my body through the window, it was then that I saw a large wooden doll, actually a ventriloquist dummy, wearing a top hat and sporting an old-fashioned eye monocle, sitting on top of a pile of books down the hallway, his back resting against the wall, his face and eyes staring directly at me. Two thoughts hit me at that moment, the first being the urge to retreat, and the second realizing with certainty, and not a little fear, that the bulk of my weight was already hanging inside the house, and that the aluminum window frame wasn't going to allow any backward movement anyway. I stared back at the dummy, and recognized him as being one that was very popular on TV in the 50s. His name? Charlie McCarthy. And had I discovered him in any other setting, I might have appreciated it a little more. But here he was looking straight at me. His owner was dead, and there was nobody in this house except him and me. It is strange how a wooden figure dressed like a little man in a tux and a top hat can take on a life of its own. I'll admit, it sent a chill right up my spine. I almost expected his jaw to start mouthing out the words, So, need some help? I lifted my body over the aluminum window frame and dropped to the floor hands first, pausing to shut the window, then beginning a careful walk down the hallway past Charlie, half expecting him to turn his head as I passed or utter one of his trademark wisecracks. But fortunately for me, he held back, and I made it downstairs to the front door. It turned out that the door wasn't bolted from the inside. It just took a major shove to open it. The winter, no doubt, playing havoc with the door width, and it just needed a little planing. The house had no power, so I couldn't turn on the lights, which just added to the loneliness and spookiness of the place. Things moved briskly from that point on. In three days, we had gotten the lights back on, sold the house, the car, the tractor, and some of the furniture, and arranged to donate the remainder to local organizations, and one neighbor who stopped by and asked for the TV. In retrospect, I don't recall what happened to the Charlie McCarthy doll. It was full-sized and would have brought a great price on eBay, but I don't recall seeing it again during the days we were there. We were out of the house often running the necessary chores and making contacts, so we didn't have our eyes on the place 24-7, and I didn't bother to lock that front door as it would have appeared bolted shut to anyone else who tried it. Maybe Charlie just decided to go for a walk. You just never know. I never did forget that meeting with Charlie McCarthy, though. I'll save some of his and his ventriloquist owner Edgar Bergen's story for the end here. But meanwhile, we have a question to answer and an urban legend to deal with. Can dolls or ventriloquist dummies be haunted? Many people think so. And we'll share a few of those stories right after these sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 1994, a very interesting doll named Robert entered the collection of the Fort East Martello Museum in Key West, Florida. The rumor is in this museum that you don't mess with this doll, and if you do, you're asking for trouble. He sits in a glass box holding a toy lion. On the wall behind him are posted apologetic letters sent by people who took his photo without permission. Their lives apparently did not go well after the visit, and they figured their only hope was to apologize. Robert was once owned by a boy called Robert Eugene Otto, who grew up in Key West and later became a well-known eccentric painter and author after surviving a pretty tormented childhood. The source of his torment? His doll, Robert, which he named after himself. He was given the doll which was three feet, four inches long, and dressed in a sailor's uniform in 1904 when he was four years old by his grandfather, who had purchased the doll in Germany. The doll has two beady black eyes, has a sort of a smirky smile to his face, and holds a little dog in his lap as he sits in a chair with his legs extended and the dog in his lap. According to the story, Robert immediately took to his new pal. At night, his parents overheard him having conversations with the doll. Very unusual conversations in which Robert would talk in his own voice and the doll would respond in a totally different voice. Naturally, Mr. and Mrs. Otto assumed that little Gene was a voice master and that he was creating a voice for sailor pal Robert. As Gene grew up, Robert remained his constant companion. The doll had his own chair at the dinner table and shared Gene's bed every night. Gene would often burst into unexplained fits of rage, and every time he did he would blame it on Robert. There were also odd occurrences of overturned furniture and scattered silverware, made especially odd by the fact that Gene wasn't around for many of those, and when the time came for punishment, Gene said, Robert did it. When Gene got married, he, no doubt at the insistence of his wife, placed Robert up in the turret room of the house, meaning the attic. Kids walking past the mansion began to report that they were seeing Robert staring at them at various times through various turret windows. A woman named Myrtle Reuter purchased the house after Otto's death and became caretaker of the doll. Visitors to her house often reported hearing footsteps in the attic and giggles, and she noted seeing a change in the doll's expression between visits to the attic. When Robert started moving around the house on his own, that became a bit much for her, she said, and so she donated it to a local museum. Robert became an instant celebrity at the museum. He has appeared on TV shows, including Ghost Hunter, he had his aura photographed. He's currently a stop on a ghost tour, and he inspired a horror movie. Fans can buy Robert replicas, books, coasters, and T-shirts, and the most adventurous can choose to have themselves locked up for the night with him in the museum. The museum director says he gets a few letters each day from former visitors whose lives have turned ugly since their visit. Their letters admitting that they disrespected him in one way or another, and their letters literally beg forgiveness. Over 1,000 letters have been received, Many list in the unexplained tragic circumstances which have occurred to them since their contact with Robert, which include everything from car crashes to sudden deaths of close friends. 
"'Sometimes he gets letters from children, "'such as the one which asked if Robert could hex a kid in school who had been bullying them. "'The museum always sends happy responses to kids, "'making sure Robert always has something cheery to say "'and that no scary connotations are present. "'But we know better, don't we, Robert?' "'Then there's Annabelle, a Raggedy Ann doll "'alleged by Ed and Lorraine Warren to be haunted. "'Annabelle provided the inspiration for the films, "'The Conjuring, and Annabelle.' She's found today at the Warren's Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. Ed and Lorraine spent decades investigating hauntings, including the infamous home site of the Amityville Murders, which provided the inspiration for the book The Amityville Horror. Lorraine, still spry at 87, and her son-in-law Tony Spera run the museum, and they draw curiosity seekers from all over the world to see the supernatural relics on display there. Some accounts say that car accidents and even physical encounters have been traced back to Annabelle, who was stored safely in a wooden glass case. Tony recalls a time when Annabelle moved inside the case as someone was trying to take a picture of her. In one picture, the doll's hands were together. In the next, according to Tony, they were an inch apart. Reportedly, a Catholic priest who lives on the grounds of the museum blesses the dolls daily to counteract their purported evil effects. According to a medium who claims to be in contact with some of the evil dolls, Annabelle really has no street cred other than what Hollywood scriptwriters have given her but the late museum founder, Ed Warren, would have disagreed. It was he who had heard the story behind the cursed doll. According to Ed, a student nurse was given the doll in 1970. The doll behaved strangely, and a psychic medium told the student that the doll was inhabited by the spirit of a deceased girl named Annabelle. The student and a roommate tried to accept and nurture the spirit-possessed doll, but the doll reportedly exhibited a malicious and frightening behavior. It was at this point that the Warrens say they were first contacted, moving the doll to their museum after pronouncing it demonically possessed. The museum is currently closed, possibly because it's so dang scary that nobody will work there. We don't know for sure. And when it comes to spooked-out dollies, Australia needs to be considered. Carrie Walton of Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, has appeared on a number of TV programs with a doll he claims to have found while visiting an abandoned building in 1972 in Wagga Wagga. He called the doll Let Me Out because of its supposedly supernatural characteristics. He says people have seen the doll move in front of them and that the doll has left visible scuff marks around the house. Add to this Okiku, who lives in a temple in Hokkaido, Japan. Okiku was given to a young girl named Okiku by her elder sister, Aikichi but soon died. Her spirit, however, was said to have continued living in the doll, which apparently grows human hair. A priest who lives in the temple cuts Okiku's hair regularly, according to that urban legend. If you're lucky, or unlucky, depending on how you see it, you might get a chance to meet Mandy, the porcelain baby doll who was gifted to the Quesdale Museum in British Columbia in 1991. Mandy is said to have supernatural powers, and visitors to the museum say that her eyes have followed them as they enter the room where she's on display. She and her donor appeared once on the Montel Williams show, so she's had her 15 seconds of fame. eBay advertisements like this one can be found with a quick Google search. Scary Baby Doll Products for Sale slash eBay Get the best deals on scary baby dolls when you shop the largest online selection at ebay.com. Free shipping on many items. Browse your favorite brands. And of course, there are hundreds of choices available. But all these are, shall we say, child's play compared to the Chucky doll. He's purely a Hollywood creation, 
"'but the idea behind him is so twisted "'that his story continues to draw thrill-seekers "'all around the world to his aura. "'He could be called an urban legend in himself. "'Chucky and his dozen or so animators "'that brought him to life "'was without a doubt the star of a 1988 American horror film "'directed and co-written by Tom Holland "'and produced by David Kirster "'from a story by Don Mancini. "'It was the first film in what was to become "'the Child's Play series "'and the first installment to feature the character "'Chucky.' In that film, Catherine Hicks plays a widowed mother who gives a doll to her son, unaware that the doll is possessed by the soul of a serial killer. The plot? In 1988, homicide detective Mike Norris chases fugitive and serial killer Charles Lee Ray through the streets of Southside, Chicago, repeatedly shooting him. The wounded Charles breaks into a toy store where Mike fatally shoots him again. A dying Charles performs a Haitian voodoo spell to transfer his soul to one of the good guy dolls, causing the store to be struck by lightning and explode. Mike survives the explosion and re-enters the store, only to find Charles's corpse and the doll. The next day, widow Karen Barclay buys the doll, now calling himself Chucky, from a homeless street vendor, as a birthday present for her six-year-old son, Andy. That night, Karen's best friend Maggie watches over Andy while Karen works late. After Andy's bedtime, Maggie finds Chucky sitting in front of a television turned to a late-night newscast covering his death. She returns Chucky to the bed, but is soon hit in the face with a hammer and falls through a window to her death. Police then search the apartment, and Detective Norris considers Andy a suspect. Before returning to bed, Andy claims that Chucky killed Maggie, not him. Karen tells the police to leave. And things only get worse from there. The movie... Is genuinely scary. During the initial release, a large crowd of protesters formed at the main entrance of MGM, calling for a ban on the film because they claimed it would incite violence in children. And wouldn't you know, MGM was targeting the 12 to 20 crowd. Local news reporters from two TV stations were broadcasting live from the scene. The film series continued to be plagued with accusations of inciting violence in children. Child's Play 3 was cited as the inspiration for two murders, which took place in the U.K. in December of 1992 and February of 1993, the first being the murder of Suzanne Capper and then the murder of James Bulger. In the Suzanne Capper case, the 16-year-old is forced to listen to recordings of a gang leader repeating the catchphrase, I'm Chucky. Want to play? Tom Holland, the writer, in response to both murders, defended the film, stating that viewers of horror movies could only be influenced by their content if they were, quote, unbalanced to begin with, end quote. I'm just wondering, how would you answer Tom's comment? If you have any children, would you let your child watch movies like this? And now, a word from our sponsors. And now back to the second half of our story today. We'll start with this clip to familiarize you with Edgar Bergen, ventriloquist and American actor, and his main character, Charlie McCarthy. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Charlie, tonight we're playing the palace. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. I hope you won't embarrass me like you did in Las Vegas. What about Las Vegas? I thought I gave a very moving performance. Yes, it was moving, all right. Especially your lips. Oh, no. <laughs> what about my lips? Well, you had your mouth open so much, two fellas use it for a slot machine. <laughs> they picked a lemon. All right. <laughs> Aren't you ashamed of yourself, Charlie? Look at this nice audience and you talk that way. Look at their faces. Uh, yeah. Yeah, she, she. <laughs> 
sort of makes you want to give up show business, doesn't it? Well, how could you say things like that? I don't know. Well, that's gratitude for you. You pick up a nobody on the street. Yeah. And you make him a big star. What do you get in return? Uh, nothing. Yeah. You never even thank me. Oh, no. <laughs> well, Charlie, with this attitude, with this philosophy, what will you be 20 years from now? Well, 32. No. <laughs> what kind of a person will you be? Well, nobody can say that now. Well, I may be able to tell you because I am able to look into the future. Yeah? Yes. I am clairvoyant. Are you, Clara? <laughs> yes, I like to toy with the supernatural and dabble with the occult. Why, you dirty old man. <laughs> well, all right. I will go into my trance. Well, you haven't far to go. No, I... <laughs> What's the matter? Gas pain? No. Sour <laughs> stomach? No. It's not easy to go into a trance. Oh, forgive me. Yes. Yes. You know, I think it sounds like the trance is a little too tight for you. No. Maybe you're going in from the wrong end. Oh. If you get in, pull the trance in after you. Yeah, all right, all right. Get rid of the whole mess. All right. I'm now looking into the future 20 years from now. What do you see? I see a disagreeable, dissipated old man. Yeah? Yeah. Well, that's you, Berger. Now, how do I look? Oh. No. no, Charlie, I will never look that way. Yeah? I'll show you how I will look. Yeah? Yes, I'm pretty clever with the makeup. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I'll show you how I look 20 years from now. All right. Here's your dressing room right here. Edgar Bergen was an American actor, comedian, vaudevillian, and radio performer, best known for ventriloquism using his characters Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd. His daughter Candace Bergen would grow up to become a famous actress as well, although she had some difficulties growing up with a three-foot dummy in a top hat occupying the next room, as well as a place at the dinner table. Bergen discovered ventriloquism at the age of 11 when he discovered a pamphlet titled The Wizard's Manual and soon after that he had the good luck to actually meet a famous ventriloquist named Harry Lester, who spent three months giving Edgar lessons in the fundamentals of the performing art. Working at various odd jobs, Edgar saved enough money to pay a woodcarver named Theodore Mack to sculpt a likeness of a rascally red-headed newspaper boy that he knew, and that carved head went on to a dummy named Charlie McCarthy, which, or should I say who, became Bergen's lifelong sidekick. By the way, Original Theodore Mack ventriloquist dummies are expensive and hard-to-find collector's items. Bergen went to Northwestern University to give pre-med a try, but he soon dropped out, finding he was able to make more money performing in vaudeville and soon radio. Bergen and Charlie were discovered at a New York party held by Elsa Maxwell for Noel Coward, who recommended them for an engagement at the famous Rainbow Room afterward. A New York City high-society landmark located on the 65th floor at 30 Rockefeller Center, known then as the RCA building and the home of NBC. It's also where they filmed Saturday Night Live. Today they call it 30 Rock or the Comcast building. The stint at the Rainbow Room landed Bergen and Charlie a regular role on the Chase and Sanborn Hour on radio, which lasted 20 years, and surprised a lot of people who thought that a ventriloquist act didn't stand much of a chance on radio. How wrong they were. Listeners envisioned Charlie as his own person, and Bergen was a genius at giving Charlie his own personality. 
"'Charlie was a girl-crazy, debonair, child or young teenager, depending on your point of view, about town, and a wooden one at that. What really made him stand out was his ability to wisecrack and say things that were impossible on broadcast at the time, using double entendres, often of a sexual nature. Charlie's one-liners attracted a large number of guest stars to the show. The roster included Henry Fonda, the Andrews sisters, Rosemary Clooney, Roy and Dale Rogers, Frank Sinatra, Carol Channing, Groucho Marx, Dinah Shore, Liberace, and occasionally Charlie's sister, Candace Bergen. And one of Charlie's favorite guests was Mae West. Ladies and gentlemen, at last the long-awaited meeting of Siren Mae West and Casanova Charles McCarthy has arrived. This is the romantic battle of the century, the dramatic moment that millions have been looking forward to. Tension is running high and so are the bets. The odds are Mae West 5, Charlie McCarthy 3. There's some talk that Charlie will weaken. They say no man can resist her. But there are others who feel that Charlie will vanquish the vampire. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Last minute flash. There's been a drop in the odds. Mae West 4, Charlie McCarthy 4 and a half. Let's get a word from the challenger, Charlie McCarthy. What, do you, what have you got to say, Charlie? It looks like a tough fight, Mom, but I think I'll win. Why do you say it's a tough fight? Well, my opponent's in great form. He's got lots of training. What do you think of your chance of winning? Well, I've had some great fights in the East. What do you think of West? Mighty pretty country. Mighty pretty. <laughs> well, Charlie's never been in better condition. He's a fashion plate with his midnight blue full-dress suit, top hat and monocle, and a blue-white butterfly tie and dress shirt. Yeah, it's PK. PK tie and shirt. Yeah, shot with gravy. <laughs> <laughs> And now a word from the champion, Mae West. We've heard so much about you, Miss West. Won't you say a word? Well, all I've got to see, say is where there's smoke, there's fire. Wow. <laughs> Boy, she burns me up. <laughs> there's nothing I'd like better than the aroma of burning wood. I wonder if she means me. <laughs> you better watch out, Charlie. Say, Charlie, do you smell that perfume? Yeah. Isn't it ravishing? Yes, it is. It's ravishing. It's weakening. So help me, I'm swooning. <laughs> what is it? Why, it's my favorite perfume, Ashes of Men. Uh-oh. <laughs> Ashes of Men. Holy smoke. She's not going to make a cinder out of me. <laughs> well, Don, there's, there's been a great deal of talk, but very little action so far. Right you are, Edgar. Miss West, this is the famous Charlie McCarthy. Oh, hello, short, dark, and handsome. Hello, tall, blonde, and terrific. <laughs> Charlie, that's no way to talk to Miss West. You hardly know her. I know it, Bergen. I'm a cad. I hate myself. Oh, uh, listen, Charlie, are these your keys? Oh, thanks, May. Did I leave them in the car? No, you left them in my apartment. Oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <clears throat> Looks like we're going to have a white Christmas. Oh, jingle bell, jingle bell. <laughs> Charlie, where did you leave those keys? I, 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 where did you leave those keys? Oh, I, 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 I'm, I'm telling you. Uh, he, uh, he left them on my dresser. So what? Charlie, why don't you walk out on Brigham? What's holding you? Well, he is. <laughs> you better tell him, May. Well, if you want to know, he did come up to see me. Oh, he did? And what was he doing up there? Well, Charlie came up and I showed him my etching. <laughs> collection. There you have it, Bergen. There you have it. Yes. So that's all there was to it. Just etchings and a stamp collection. <laughs> He's so naive. <laughs> so that's what's the matter with him. Come here, honey. Closer so we can talk intimately. Yeah, well, well if you don't mind, I think I'd better keep my distance. Well, I don't like long-distance conversations, so come here. I thought you were going to have a nice long talk Tuesday night at my apartment. Where did you go when the doorbell rang? Well, I tried to hide in your clothes closet, but two guys kicked me out. 
after I went out the back door. Don't tell me you went down through the you went out through the French windows. I'm on the third floor, you know. Oh, so that's what it was, the French windows, huh? I was going to say you were pretty skimpy with those back steps. <laughs> oh, you look pretty good to me, Charlie. Come here. But I thought you only liked tall men. Oh, that was my last year's model. This year I'm on a diet. Oh, so that's it. You're on a diet. Yes. Tell me, Miss West, have you ever found the one man in your life that you could really love? Yes. Sure, lots of times. Oh, I know. <laughs> Could you even like Mr. Bergen? Oh, Mr. Bergen. Well, of course. He's very sweet. In fact, he's the right guy. Confidentially, you'll have to show me a man I don't like. That's well. Bergen's your man. You know, he can be had. On second thought, I'm liable to take him away from you. Then what do you say? Well, if you take Bergen away, I'm speechless. <laughs> you ain't afraid I'll do you wrong. Well, now that you ask, I... Oh, uh... you're afraid I'll do you right. Well, I'm slightly confused. I need time for that one, man. <laughs> That's all right. I like a man what takes his time. <laughs> Why don't you come up uh, home with me now, honey? I'll let you play in my wood pile. Well. <laughs> I'm not feeling very well tonight. I've been so nervous lately. I think I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. There I go. <laughs> so, good time, Charlie's going to play hard to get. Well, you can't kid me. You're afraid of women. Your tavern over stuff is just a front. A false front. It's not so loud, me. Not so loud. All my girlfriends are listening. Oh, yeah, you're all wooden a yard long. Yeah. You weren't so nervous and backward when you came up to see me in my apartment. In fact, you did, didn't need any encouragement to kiss me. Did I do that? Well, you certainly did. I got marks to prove it. Uh-huh. You too. Oh, that's too much. This is too much. Yeah. Well, get this. I don't need you. I got all the gentlemen friends I want. Why, well, I got men for every mood. Men for every day in the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. A good man Friday, asking a good man Saturday. I change my men like I change my clothes. And you, you... Hey, May, you're not walking out on me, are you? I've got a reputation at stake. No man walks out on me. They might carry them out, but they never walk out. <laughs> I'm mad about you. I love you. I've acted like a fool. That wasn't acting. Come here. <laughs> I'll show you how to act. Oh, May, May, don't be so rough. To me, love is peace and quiet. That ain't love, that's... Charlie's feud with W.C. Fields was a regular feature of the show. W.C. Fields was a portly actor who portrayed a wisecracking Irish drunk who was famous for his one-liners. One conversation went like this. Fields. Well, if it isn't Charlie McCarthy, the woodpecker's pinup boy. Charlie. Well, if it isn't W.C. Fields, the man who keeps Seagram's in business. Fields. Quiet, Wormwood, or I'll whittle you into a Venetian blind. Charlie. That makes me shudder. Fields. Tell me, Charles, is it true that your father was a gate-legged table? Charlie. If it is, your father was under it. Fields. Why, you stunted spruce, I'll throw a Japanese beetle on you. Charlie, why, you barfly, you, I'll stick a wick in your mouth and use you for an alcohol lamp. Bergen's success continued on radio from 1937 to 1948 until competition forced him out, but he came back with an offer from CBS in 1949 to do the Charlie McCarthy show, and beyond that, Bergen was handed film roles in a number of memorable movies. Fast forward to 1977, when Bergen and Charlie were offered a guest appearance on a second-season episode of The Muppet Show. His daughter Candace, a star in her own right, having done a guest spot in season one. Edgar Bergen also appeared as Grandpa Walton in the original Walton's television movie, The Homecoming, 
A Christmas Story, in 1971. Will Gear did pick up the role in the following TV series, but some fans might remember that the voices of Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen were often heard by the Waltons as they gathered round the radio to listen. In mid-September 1978, Bergen announced he was retiring after more than 50 years in show business. He also announced that he was sending his monocled, top-hatted partner Charlie McCarthy to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. He opened at Caesars Palace in Vegas that September for a two-week farewell-to-show business engagement, and he died three weeks after that of kidney disease. In his will, according to Candace Bergen's memoir, he left his daughter nothing but bequeathed Charlie $10,000. Candace wrote, I'd chased my father's approval all my life, and here was proof I'd never get it. I was hurt, shocked when I discovered that he had left me out of his will. He had written, I make this provision for sentimental reasons, which to me are vital due to the association with Charlie McCarthy, who has been my constant companion and who has taken on the character of a real person and from whom I have never been separated for even a day. Throughout her memoir, Candace suggested that her father had a stronger relationship with the wooden dummy than with her. Charlie dominated her childhood and even had his own bedroom in her house. Those were unique circumstances to grow up with, she wrote. Sometimes, she said, I have to give myself credit for being a functional human being. I knew my father loved me, but with his sweetest reserve, it was hard for him to tell me. It does seem that Edgar loved Charlie a bit too much. You have to wonder how Charlie's doing at the Smithsonian. Has anyone talked to him lately? Has he talked to anyone else? There is no doubt that the idea of human souls somehow transferring to inanimate objects like toys, as in Toy Story, or dolls, as with Chucky and Annabelle, or ventriloquist dummies, is great fodder for urban legends. It is true we never heard of a time when Charlie acted on his own, but at least one museum claims to be home to a ventriloquist dummy who has become an urban legend in California. A popular item throughout California's Bruce County Cultural Museum's time has been Jerry, the ventriloquist dummy. Jerry came to the museum on loan in 1957 before being donated in 1981. Created back in the 1860s, Jerry belonged to Paisley resident R.C. Pierce. The family story accompanying Jerry is that he traveled through Ontario, performing along with another dummy, his brother, Joe. Then one day, Joe was stolen. Thanks to the efforts of past museum staff, Jerry has come to have his own myth and has become a local urban legend. The story, from what appears to be a museum tour script, aided in cementing Jerry's myth, as well as frightening young visitors. Imagine walking to these halls without a flashlight or the company of other people. Only the eerie darkness of the halls and the occasional creak of this old building. Spook stuff, huh? Add to the spooky atmosphere a wandering ghost who searches the halls. The ghost I'm speaking of resides in the general store and is over 150 years old. He even has a name. Jerry. Jerry is no stranger to the museum. He has been here for 34 years. But before he arrived, the tragedy occurred in Jerry's life that has haunted him day and night. Jerry, as you'll see, is a ventriloquist puppet who was handmade by a local ventriloquist. Jerry was not the only puppet he made. He also made Jerry a brother named Joe. Over 150 years ago, Jerry, Joe, and Mr. Pierce traveled all over Ontario making people laugh and performing jokes and pranks. The laughter and happiness ceased when Joe was stolen. Somewhere along their journeys, Joe was puppet-napped, never to be seen again. Soon after his disappearance, 
the act folded, and Jerry returned alone to Paisley with Mr. Pierce. Since then he has sat and waited for Joe. Joe hasn't appeared, yet. It's whispered by some museum staff that Jerry doesn't just sit and wait for Joe. He, according to them, wanders the halls at night looking for Joe. He almost got caught once when an alarm went off. When the staff members and the police came in to investigate, they could find nothing amiss. But they did notice the door to Jerry's case was wide open. Pretty spooky. So just watch yourselves to make sure Jerry isn't tagging along as we tour through the rest of the museum. All in fun, right? Be sure to let us know if you had a chance to track down any urban legends by emailing us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story. Stay on the lookout, too, for a brand new show from 1001 called 1001 Stories from Roy's Diner, or just simply Roy's Diner. In this new Radio Archives show, we're bringing the best of 1950s radio thrillers, concentrating on suspense, thriller, and sci-fi stories. It's a kind of a sister show to 1001 Radio Days, which does very well for us. 1001 Radio Days mostly consists of detective and cop shows, like Dragnet and Yours Truly Johnny Dollar, and The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. I have personally selected these stories at Roy's Diner, and these are the kind that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We should have Roy's Diner on most podcast hosts by early December. See you next week here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast.